But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian." This is the Word of God for the people of God. God. If you were in town on Christmas Eve and able to come to one of our candlelight Christmas Eve services, you may remember that very near the end of the service, I walked from up here on the chancel down to the altar table and had a candle that I lighted from the Advent wreath candles that were burning, and then took it and touched the tallest of the white candles that we designate as the Christ candle, and the wick burst into flame. Now, it doesn't seem that it adds that much more light to the room when it first ignites. But as I take it and turn and share it with two or three other people, and then they share it with two or three more, before you know it, light is streaming across the sanctuary, and the whole gathering is bathed in a wonderful, warm light. As we sing together, joy to the world, the Lord is come. It's a breathtaking moment of exhilaration as we celebrate the light of Christ coming into our world. But that night in the sermon, we also had the assigned text from Isaiah, this ninth chapter. As we examined the text, I had us focus on verse 6 that night, where it talks about, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And I suggested that we have a choice to make, just like those who met this Christ child as an adult in person, had to make a choice of whether or not to follow. I suggested we too, as we meet this Christ today in our lives, we have a choice to make. Will we follow Him? Will we let His authority grow in our lives? Oh, the early church saw in this prophecy from Isaiah that had been written hundreds of years before, that he was describing what they experienced in Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ coming as light into a dark world. Did you hear that in verse 2? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. 
And surely those early Christians thought God was shining a light on them through Jesus Christ. It was good news for each and every individual to hear of God's love and forgiveness and mercy, of God's grace being poured into the world through this man Jesus. Oh, it's good news for us, all right. But we should also notice Isaiah says the message is particularly for those who were in anguish, for those who were carrying a burden, who have a bar across their shoulders, the rod of oppression weighing them down. Now in Isaiah's time, often the rod of oppression was coming from outside of their country. Foreign rulers and kings and militaries coming in to the territory of Israel and Judah and trying to take over. But sometimes it was simply rival kings, people jostling for authority and power within their own country. And once they were able to ascend a little bit and gain a little control and power, often they used it against their own people to put down any opposition, to crush any who would disagree or challenge their power. But then, hundreds of years later, Jesus comes along. And as Matthew tells the story, after His baptism, He proclaims that He's ready to start His ministry. You heard Sarah read it for our gospel lesson from Matthew 4. I'm not going to read the whole lesson she read to us again, but I want to read a portion of it to you. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. Matthew tells it this way. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah, might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And then Matthew writes, from that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then Matthew says, Jesus immediately begins to call disciples. And he turns to these four who are fishing and calls them to be a disciple and says to them, Follow me. And I will make you fish for people. And that takes us right back to our question from Christmas Eve. Will we follow? Do we recognize that we have a choice to make? Can we still see the light of Christ that warmed our souls on Christmas Eve when we felt so energized and exhilarated? Are we willing to follow now? Are we willing to let this light of Christ shape and form us and lead us into the future? 
Will we repent or change our orientation toward life to include our neighbors as ourselves rather than just ourselves? Last Monday, we had a national holiday where we celebrated Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. He was born January 15th. 1929 every year around the country there are celebrations remembering his life and legacy last Sunday night right here in this sanctuary we had such a service this downstairs was filled with people from across our community it reminded me of when I was here as an associate so many years ago I was invited to be on the Martin Luther King Commemoration Society Board of Tulsa. The founders of that organization were still alive and leading that group. And after I served for two or three years, they said to me at a board meeting one day, we've been having our community-wide service in churches in North Tulsa, but we have outgrown all the spaces, all the sanctuaries that we have. We are wondering if Boston Avenue Church might open its doors and welcome us and the community in for the Martin Luther King service. I said, oh, I don't know. I'll have to come talk to Dr. Biggs and check that out. I came back to the church and at the next staff meeting talked with Dr. Biggs and the staff and told them what we had been invited to do. We discussed it and, and decided we could do it. We would try it for one year. And so we did one year, then two years, then three years. And now here we are nearly 30 years later still hosting this service that brings such a wonderful cross-section of people from around this city all together. And I'm so glad that we still host it because it's so important to build bridges across social and racial barriers that still plague our city. If you've never been there, I invite you to come sometime. I think you would enjoy it. The music is always fun and energizing and inspiring. They always have a high school student who's memorized Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech and delivers it with fervor and power. It's amazing how wonderfully Dr. King was able to write about a vision of America for all people, for all races. And he articulated the vision so clearly and so powerfully and beautifully. And the student stands here and delivers it. It's a touching moment. But I will admit to you that often during that service I become uncomfortable when one or more of the speakers point to the work that still needs to be done because of the injustice and oppression that so many Americans still endure. It makes me squirm a little in my seat when they begin to talk about that. This year during the service, I begin to think about how young Dr. King was when he died. He was assassinated in 1968. Born in 29, he had not yet reached his 40th birthday, still a man in his 30s when he was killed. 
And before he was assassinated, as I told you last week, he'd endured an avalanche of threats upon his life and the life of his family. His house had been bombed. Others had attempted to assassinate him. And in fact, he had been arrested several times and put in jail because of his peaceful, nonviolent protest against laws that were unjust in America. And one of those times of being in jail... He found out that there were eight local clergy people criticizing him for his work. He ended up writing them a letter back, sort of like one of our epistles in the Christian scriptures. It became known as Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Interestingly enough, he mentions the 8th century prophets like Isaiah in his writing. I went back and reread that letter this week. And I'll tell you, it disturbs me and makes me uncomfortable when I read it because too much of what he describes is still relevant today. I would recommend that if you haven't read it recently, that you find some time this week to go and reread it. It will take you a few minutes. But I would suggest it's worth the read. I want to read you a few excerpts this morning to give you a taste of what he said. First of all, he's being criticized by white clergy people that he's even come to Birmingham. They tell him that he's trying to move too fast and he ought to wait. He should have stayed where he lives, which was Atlanta, Georgia at the time. Let me read to you what he wrote. I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century B.C. left their villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so I am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. For years now, I've heard the word wait It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. 
then he goes on to talk about his nonviolent protest and how the people in his movement for equal and civil rights had prepared their souls so that they would never strike back and answer violence with violence. And after he describes all of that, toward the very end of the letter, I had forgotten where he turns his attention. But he turns it to the white church, the churches who are predominantly filled with white people. And as I read what he wrote, it stung all the more. Because as a white clergy person, so much of what he says, I'm afraid, still exists today. See what you think. This is what he wrote. When I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama, a few years ago, so that bus protest was in 1955 and 56. He's writing in April of 1963. I felt we would be supported by the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be among our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. In spite of my shattered dreams, Dr. King writes, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern would serve as the channel through which our just grievances could reach the power structure. I had hoped that each of you would understand. But again, I have been disappointed. He goes on. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound, so often it is the arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day, I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. As I read that, 
what it sounds like today. He wrote this 50 years ago. And yet today we know that young adults are staying away from the church in record numbers. And so often they say it's because what happens at church is irrelevant to what my life looks like. So often they say we're hypocritical and judgmental and don't really live out the love of Christ that we talk about. And I read Dr. King's letter it felt like he was talking about today. I'm afraid we're living through a time where his prediction is coming true. Jesus says, repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then he calls Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Amen.